Welcome back to the Dayson Digest. We are here today to present episode 59, last episode in our 50s. It's so exciting that we're almost to 60 episodes of our podcast, and we are recording this on March 27th of 2023. I am your host today. I'm Libby Dodds-Ashley. I'm the operations director for Dayson and one of the pharmacist liaisons who helps to cover our sites. And I'm joined today by Ray Perez, uh, our fabulous infectious diseases fellow. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me, Libby. Always a joy to be on the podcast. <laughs> um, we are super excited about this article today because it's so relevant to things we do at many of our hospitals. And actually, similar to some work I know that Dayson members are starting to do uh, around appropriateness metrics. Um, but the article today is entitled Adherence to Antimicrobial Prophylaxis Guidelines for Elective Surgeries Across 825 Hospitals Between 2019 and 2020. Um, this is done by a group of people we work with often um, up in Baltimore, so mostly the group from Hopkins and the University of Maryland. The lead author is Stephanie Cabral. So um, this was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases on February 12th of this year, so a pretty recent article. Um, definitely an important topic, Ray. You know, I think I was kind of surprised with some of their background, and I did not realize that 15% of all inpatient antibiotic use is actually for surgical prophylaxis. Did you find that surprising? I like highlighted that as I was reading through this article, because I knew that that was a good chunk of our inpatient use. But to think of, I mean, God, at 15%, we're talking like a seventh of all of our antimicrobial use in the hospital. That's totally wild to me. Yeah, it was such a big deal. And I think now as we're learning how to integrate the new joint commission requirements around stewardship, where we have to develop ways to look at appropriateness, gosh, it seems important that we'd be able to do this for our surgical prophylaxis. So really exciting. And what they used in this study as the source of truth or what they were comparing to are the ASHP guidelines. So those are the surgical prophylaxis guidelines that were published in 2013. I know at least at all the Dayson sites uh, where I go visit, we talk all the time about when an update is coming. But the nice thing about these is these were not new or rapidly changing guidelines. So, so you, sh you should be up to speed with what you were doing with the surgical prophylaxis guidelines from 2013 by the time they took a peek at this in 2019 and 2020. It was also interesting, you know, they, they used the guidelines as their source of truth for what patients should be getting. And they were pretty strict about it. You know, there was only one appropriate antibiotic for each of the surgeries that they looked at. So they wanted to see one, were you getting the guideline adherent antimicrobials prior to your surgery? And then two, they looked at the duration and also if there was any association between patients who got vancomycin and if they developed kidney injury. And this is important because we've seen that come out more recently, that particularly if you get combination agents for surgical prophylaxis or you have prolonged durations, we know that there can be some AKI. And these investigators also included that in their work. The data set that they used was from the Premier database. So the Premier database is it's a large data set. It's, it's claims data. And they, in this study, had data from um, 825 hospitals, but the Premier data set has almost 900, around 870 hospitals included. They estimate that in that database, they have about a quarter of all U.S. inpatient admissions. So a pretty robust sample size. For the purposes of this study, and, and I'll say when I read the title, I was hoping to see this like great big investigation of all these different sorts of surgeries that they included. And I was really excited to see what they were going to call appropriate for all of those. Um, but they had to narrow their work. And so they really focused on five different surgical procedures. And those were craniotomy, a non-revision of a hip or knee replacement, orthopedic spinal procedures, and hernia repair. And 
again, they looked at those two years, 2019 and 2020. So they also have the COVID element. Now I think, and I don't know, Ray, do you want to talk a little bit about how they identified if patients were at risk for MRSA? Because obviously that would sway what antibiotics they got. I think this is a key point to the study. Yeah. So as they're trying to assess appropriateness and using that strict definition, a key point is, can they get a, a you know, are they at risk for MRSA and can they get a penicillin? And so those two factors, they were really trying to suss out to figure out, was this regimen appropriate? Now, the way this database works, unfortunately, it leaves them just with diagnosis codes. Um, and so they were looking for ICD-10 codes that were related to previous MRSA infection or known colonization uh, with MRSA. And then as another balancing factor, try to capture a few more of those. Uh, they also looked at patients who had been admitted or brought in from a nursing home or patients who uh, were on hemodialysis. The idea there is if you're being in a, if you've been in a hemodialysis center and at higher risk for being exposed to MRSA. Um, yeah, similarly with the, sorry, similar with the allergy, they were looking really focusing just on diagnosis codes there. Yeah. I'll be honest, Ray. When I read that, I was like, gosh, I don't know how often I see allergies uh, coded as a diagnosis code, um, but we'll, You'll see when we get to the results, I think they hit the mark pretty well. Um, they tend to run on the population average for penicillin allergies reported or beta-lactam allergies. So it worked better than I might have thought if I was planning this study, which is somewhat interesting. There's a lot of things that they also had to consider in this. And again, the limitations of the diagnosis codes you've already brought up, and, and we really want to emphasize that. So, so there are some things to really kind of have a skeptical eye when you're going through this. But at the end of the day, they had data on over 500,000 surgical procedures. Again, just looking at those five different categories, which is pretty impressive. They had 9% with a documented penicillin allergy, even using just those diagnosis codes. So there you go. There was, I, I was proven wrong. You know, I was like, oh gosh, they're going to have something like 3%. But we know in the U.S. population, it's about 9 to 10% of people report uh, penicillin allergies. Uh, that MRSA risk category was pretty low or infrequent, less than 2%. 1.4% of those cases had a history of MRSA or were considered high risk. What do you think about that, right? I thought it was low. Do you think that is low? And when I just think about the patients in our hospital that we see and the rates of MRSA colonization, granted, a big academic center like ourselves probably isn't representative of the broader population, let alone an elective surgery population, but still thought that that definitely seemed a little bit on the lower side. Yeah, and we can even talk about this at the end, but I, I think the authors did a really nice job to try to overcome that by doing such robust sensitivity analyses. You know, they had a small subset of hospitals for which they did have microbiology data, so they looked at MRSA rates in those hospitals, and then they used this large spray to say, well, what if, uh, you know, double or triple the times the number of patients actually had MRSA risk, would you still um, see variations in use. And so we'll get into that a little bit more in the results. It's important because vancomycin was actually the most frequent culprit for being considered non-adherent antimicrobial prophylaxis. I think probably if you took a survey of Dason stewardship pharmacists, we could have predicted that. Um, but, you know, about 40% of the time were, antibiotics were considered non-adherent and in a third of those cases, it was 77% of those surgeries that were non-adherent were due to the receipt of vancomycin, either alone and not being appropriate or in combination with something else like cefazolin. So vancomycin was definitely got the bad rap in this study. What are your thoughts on that, Ray? You know, at our hospital, vancomycin is the number one ordered antibiotic in terms of days of therapy across all of our antimicrobials. So it's not entirely surprising to me. 
Um, and I think there's just a lot of fear about, uh, you know, MRSA in particular and a, a slight obsession with it. For better or for worse, we do a good job about talking about it. And uh, people are always thinking about making sure they're covering for that MRSA. And I, you can see the way it trickles down in this in this area too. It, I think it is very interesting. It seems like there's something unique about the psychology of needing the vancomycin um, that people really feel the need to reach for it. You know, I, and, I, and I think... I think part of it has to do with that equating resistance with virulence. You know, it's it's definitely known that MRSA bacteremia has worse outcomes than MSSA bacteremia. And I think there's this, I think people make that association, association in your head, oh, this is the antibiotic I use for the scarier bacteria, therefore it must be a better antibiotic, even though really that's just not the case. Yeah, I was also surprised by the majority of the rest of the non-adherent uh, antibiotics were inappropriate use of gram-negative agents. I feel like when I'm working with sites on their surgical prophylaxis guidelines, I'm usually trying to get those gram-negative pathogens covered. So I was kind of surprised um, that extra gram-negative coverage was considered um, inappropriate in 19% of those non-adherent cases. I'll also say that there were differences between the different surgery types. So the best were the hip replacements. And I guess that kind of makes sense to me. I feel like those are so protocolized in most hospitals, it's hard to get it wrong. Um, the worst were the spinal procedures. And I also feel like I can see some variability in those. So, so differences between the types of, of procedures in terms of their adherence. There were also some differences or at least some interesting trends noted in surgical prophylaxis duration. I think it's important to note because of all those issues about diagnostic codes, we don't have exact timing of procedures. So it's more of a crude marker of duration. So whether you got it on the day or two after your procedure, and they can't really look at that 24 hour time point, us, you know, stewards like to really see for duration of surgical prophylaxis to be adherent. Um, although, you know, some people are even saying the close of the wound, it's not necessary. But 65% of patients in this analysis had antibiotics after that first day, the day of their procedure, which is, is pretty uh, pretty impressive, although the majority, 96%, were done by two days. So we, we no longer had those three to five day prophylaxis, but we got a lot of those full 24 hours. And I think that we see that a lot in clinical practice, both at Duke and in the Dayson Hospital. So I, I'm not too surprised by that. And a little sad, but something else we have to bring up, you know, for the Dayson Hospitals, there were geographic variations seen in the rates of non-adherence. Um, and just like when we look at areas of how high outpatient antibiotic prescribing, areas of high inpatient antibiotic prescribing, the Southeast United States always wins. Um, <laughs> I, I guess what that means is we always get to be Duke blue in the graph. Um, so maybe that's a positive thing, but, um, but not obviously ideal. So, so certainly a little bit of a bummer there. Now, let's talk a little bit about the toxicity endpoints. So the developing acute kidney uh, injury in patients who got vancomycin, it was actually associated with a 20% higher odds of developing AKI if you got vancomycin, even if it was just a single day of therapy. So that really spoke to me. You know, the evidence is mounting when we use vancomycin for surgical prophylaxis with or without a beta-lactam, we've really got to be thoughtful about that. And knowing that so many patients were getting that vancomycin, and I've seen this myself where we're so afraid to miss something, it seems let's just lean on the side of giving all the patients the regimen of cefazolin vancomycin and not worry as much about the MRSA nasal swabs or not worry as much about the risk factor scores. 
Um, but this is causing me to rethink that approach at a lot of facilities. Do you, do you think it will change practice and, and how the asset team talks about it at Duke, Ray? I think it's a nice quality of evidence just in terms of the sheer number of patients that we're dealing with for us to really be able to push back a little bit when we get that just in case argument. You know, I mean, I think for other antibiotics, we talk about, hey, you can give that one dose of aminoglycoside and their kidneys are going to be okay. And so I think having this evidence to suggest that even if you're restricting to this population of patients where they only got vancomycin for one day, you're seeing this difference. It's a, it's a nice thing to have in your pocket as you're going into those conversations and trying to work with your surgeons to make a protocol that you can all agree on together. Yeah. And the last finding before we jump into discussion, Ray, is that I can't explain this, but the non-adherent procedures, they went up during COVID. They were 8% higher in 2020 compared to what they were to 2019. I have no idea why. What do you think it is? That really struck me as odd as well, because if anything, I would assume that these sorts of elective surgeries would have decreased substantially in that time period. Um, but perhaps that was it, you know, like who knows if, was, was it the same usual scrub techs who were in the hospital? What sort of staffing shortages or cross coverage were providers being expected to do during that hectic time as people were getting redeployed to other positions? And so if I had to put my money down on something I think it has to do with those staffing concerns because with all the rest of experience I had during COVID, I feel like, you know, people being asked to do new and different jobs uh, and also staff turnover that happened during that peak of that time ended up contributing to a lot of the changes that we saw. Well, let's pick this apart a little bit. So starting with that top line number, so 40% of surgical prophylaxis for these five procedures was considered non-adherent um, according to those ASHP prophylaxis guidelines. Now that's higher than we've seen reported before. So I think it was a little bit of a sting knowing how many stewardship programs have been working so hard at surgical prophylaxis. I, I don't know one hospital in Dayson that hasn't addressed it. I know Duke has been working on it. So this was a little bit of a, of a disappointment to see that number. But I do think it's important to highlight that compared to previous examinations of this, they use pretty strict definitions. They, they were pretty intense in what they counted. They literally had a single antibiotic that was appropriate for each patient case combination. For the overwhelming majority, that was cefazolin alone. Whereas prior investigators did things like if a patient, if, if cefazolin was the agent that you really should have for prophylaxis, as long as you got cefazolin, who cares if you also got vanc and a little bit of Cipro, um, they would count that as adherent. And these investigators counted those, if you got cefazolin and added anything else you didn't need, that was not adherent. So that stricter definition is probably driving up these rates a little bit. Um, what do you think, Ray? Do you agree with their stricter interpretation of, of adherence? Yeah, you know, especially given that example that you're talking about, I mean, look at what the balancing outcome they used in this study was. Patients who were getting that extra vancomycin were getting more AKI. We've, you know, imagining all the additional gram-negative agents in terms of what that could be doing uh, to people's microbiomes if they're getting like a quinolone necessarily. You know, I remember seeing some presentations at ID Week this year that were showing that just one dose of parenteral antibiotics changed patients' risks of later developing a more resistant organism. And so as for these surgeries, you know, they were very thoughtful. And we mentioned that we thought they were gonna have a ton of different things they're going into, but they picked five surgeries specifically because these are the ones that had the grade A strength of evidence from ASHP. They wanted to pick the ones that they felt like, hey, we really have the evidence to make you guys feel confident on picking the one 
correct regimen. And if we are going to really be trying to minimize harm and you know optimize patient outcomes here, that really needs to take into account the effects of unnecessary antibiotics, as well as making sure people are on the right antibiotic to uh, prevent those SSIs. So I think it's really important actually to have you know uh, data that's this rigorous on the other end for us to compare as we're making these decisions for our own formularies. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and it. You know, it's it's good for us to think through that. I know that we have several sites and we're trying to work on some electronic definitions of appropriate or adherent. Um, and, and so I think we're going to be having these conversations in Dayson in the coming months and years over how how strict do we go or do we give credit to anyone who tried? Um, so, so it's good for us to start thinking through that. But also about vancomycin, that really came out as the villain in this article, right? You know, vancomycin, it's bad. It's always bad. But we've added it to a lot of surgical prophylaxis order sets for good reason, cases of outbreaks and other things. But clearly, this is showing us we're overusing it. I think we see it's being overused when we go out to our hospitals. What do you think it is? You know, we hit on it a little bit more that maybe it's kind of seen as this bigger, better um, antibiotic. I, I think that at least in some of my hospitals, if there's a surgeon who has ever had a cluster of surgical site infection cases that are due to MRSA, they're probably going to use vancomycin pretty liberally until the end of time, quite frankly. Um, but what are some things we can do to really help roll back that vancomycin use? It, you know, what do you think, Ray? What What do you think the the magic, the secret sauce is to, to driving down our vancomycin use? <laughs> oh, I think I'd be a wealthy man if I had the secret sauce to get people to prescribe less vancomycin. Um, but you know, I think I think a lot of that is fear and, and and that's a psychological barrier that we were talking about. Um, and so I think I think helping get a sense of what's the data in your institution can be helpful. So you know we were trying uh, I do stewardship rounds in our cardiac ICU and you know they, we were trying to help them address their vancomycin use and just as a quick exercise, we were able to pull some data on how many patients did they actually have with staph bacteremia in the last year of the hundreds of patients they see. And the answer was like nine um, and kind of having that conversation with uh, the, the staff providers there and being like, hey, I know we all get have that memory of that one time we got burned and how scary that can be. But for something that's literally happening, you know, when you can show people this is a fractional percentage of your patients that this is really going to apply to. And meanwhile, here's the very real uh, harm. So we're seeing 19 percent of these patients develop an AKI. Um, I think you. I think when you are able to present people um, in a non-confrontational way with with the real numbers, you can make some big strides there. Yeah. Similarly, that you know, I already mentioned that Grab negative you surprised me. I feel like I'm much more encountering providers who are comfortable using clindamycin alone in a beta lactam allergic patient, and I'm trying to push to get something added in for Grab negative. So I was surprised that overusing Grab negatives was high. Do you think the issues around that are different because the drugs are different, or do you think it's also similar, you know, knowing what your gram negative rates are? I know that we certainly, with our DICON colleagues, from time to time, we do have outbreaks of gram negative surgical site infections. So do you think it's that same fear or something different with gram negatives? I, I don't know that I have a strong feeling about that. Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of different things. You know, for something like clindamycin, you know, I wonder if there's a knowledge deficit in the spectrum of activity of that drug. If you think about sort of the weird and varied uses that it's been used for, you know, like some, you know, the ENT surgeons use it a lot for all sorts of 
uh, uh, sinus and ear infections. Then there's the its use for necrotizing fasciitis, and then there's its use for just routine skin soft tissue infections. And so I think for someone who's not really thinking about its spectrum of activity and what organisms, that can be a more confusing antibiotic in particular. And I think with this study, you mentioned you were a little surprised by the gram-negative use. And I, I, you know, if I had to put my finger on it again, I think if I really look at those surgeries that were chosen, I can see how people might lean towards a little extrajudicious gram-negative coverage. You know, a, a hernia repair is getting close to an intra-abdominal surgery and uh, people being nervous about other gram-negatives there. You know, if you have a orthopedic spinal procedure that's in the lower lumbar region and you're starting to approach the sacrum and people are worried about... Am I worried there there could be some gram-negative organisms there? And I imagine just with craniotomy, you're just nervous about anything getting into the brain. I, I can I can see how so with some of this this collection of surgeries in particular may have leaned in the other direction towards a little extra gram-negative coverage as opposed to the opposite that you've usually been encountering. And the the other big story I think in this article was something that. I feel like it would surprise absolutely no one who's listening to this podcast and that a lot of patients get surgical prophylaxis for at least a day after the procedure. Now, I'll give them credit. The overwhelming majority were not on antibiotic prophylaxis anymore um, for day two, but there was a lot, 65% on day one. Again, surprising to nobody, but what do you think we need to change that? You know, I know that in the ASHP guidelines, they give you that 24 hours. Skip always gave you 24 hours before it was sunsetted. HICPAC has more recent guidance that says you can stop at wound closure, but we seem to have trouble getting traction. Um, I want to hear what you think it's going to take. I honestly think, Ray, that what it's going to take to change that is a surgical society coming out with a guideline that says you can stop at wound closure. I don't know what you think. I think that's probably true. I mean, honestly, uh, if, if and to be entirely honest, seeing that 96 were done by day two, I was actually pretty reassured by that <laughs> um, after some other experiences I've had with uh, people pushing for even more prophylaxis. So that I was actually quite pleased to see that. And I similarly think that there, you know, I think all everything we talked about with the fear of that one time that you've had like a an MRSA cluster outbreak, you know, the, the, I think the incentives are such that with surgical site infections, it's going to be an, always going to be an uphill battle unless the surgical society comes out um, and bringing it down to really just antibiotics until time of closure. Yeah. And we always, you know, like to leave our listeners with something actionable around stewardship. And so I'm hoping that by listening to us tell you the results of this study from the group up in Baltimore, that you're compelled to go try to at least stop so much vancomycin use in surgical prophylaxis. But who, what's the best way to do that? Who are our targets? You know, I, I think we traditionally go to surgeons, but are they the right ones for us to bring to the table? Are we, who are we missing? Who are we missing, Ray, in our surgical prophylaxis interventions? Yeah, this is something I started thinking about a lot. You know, uh, one of the biggest updates we've made to our own surgical prophylaxis guidelines in the last few months was really pushing to make sure people were getting cefazola and the appropriate antibiotic and trying to reduce vancomycin use. And what we tried to target was people who had a listed penicillin allergy. You know, there were recent guidelines suggesting that, you know, if it's been more than five years and it wasn't a severe reaction, you can just challenge those patients with the one dose of cefazolin they're going to need perioperatively. Um, and we found that, you know, it's a lot of times it was actually the anesthesiologists who, and or some of the perioop nurses who were pending these orders and putting in the order sets that had been created for these procedures. And so, 
Um, we found a team approach was really the key here, not just talking to the surgeons and the intern who's going to be putting in the case request, but getting anesthesia involved and getting the op nurses and scrub techs involved so that they know that, hey, just because you see that they've spent all this time getting trained to where I need to check that allergy. And if I see the pendant allergy in the chart, I'm going to make sure that the backup antibiotic is ordered. How do we address that? And I think similarly, hey, I see this patient's getting vancomycin. Do they really need this? And thinking about all those other people who can be in the room as, uh, you know, we think about our Swiss cheese model and okay. quality improvement and catching errors. So can they be there to, if something falls through that first hole to be able to catch it um, and really valuing our interdisciplinary team and everything they have to offer? Yeah, all good points. You know, I think uh, what I'm hearing you say, Ray, is that as stewards, we probably need to get up and go to some early meetings uh, to catch <laughs> all these folks. Uh, but it's important. It's important to meet them and it's important to get many people around the same table. Because I also, the one thing that we haven't talked about is a huge driver of the surgical prophylaxis selection is convenience for the staff in that peri and area. And I'm, a, you know, an old pharmacy technician from back in the day, and we used to deliver our cefazolins the night before, and we've gotten those deliveries much closer to the procedure to get them in, in that operative window that we desire. But I think going and sort of watching workflows and making sure the antibiotics we want them to use are the easiest ones to put in their hand is also a big deal uh, to getting this the way we want it and getting the drugs used that we really prefer. So interesting. Well, right. Thank you so much. I think surgical prophylaxis is an ongoing, continual stewardship priority. And it's really exciting to see this large look at surgical prophylaxis throughout the United States. I encourage if you're a JSON member, work with your liaison to do some of this adherence work at your own facility. It'd be great if we could all come to the symposium next fall and talk about this ourselves and what our own successes are and our own issues are where we have to do some work. So if you're out there listening and, and want a great project and want to have something to show the Joint Commission on how you're tracking adherence to one of those guidelines that you implemented to be uh, core element concordant, think about doing this one. I think it's a great opportunity and we're certainly here to help you with the data. Ray, any closing remarks? No, I think this is a, an area that will always be important and will always uh, have returns by investing uh, more time and making those connections to do it. And so I look forward to continuing uh, the ongoing process of tackling it, making it as uh, effective as possible. Well, as always, Ray, thanks for joining us. It's fun to do these with you. And I want to thank all the listeners and y'all have a great week. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of the Dayson Digest. Take care.